Welcome to Unsolved Mysteries of the World, Season 6, Episode 14, The Old Idaho Penitentiary, Part 2. In 1932, Joseph F. Hook, a well-known author of pulp fiction stories, and his wife Edna moved to 4312 North 37th Street with their three children, Clyde 21, Mildred 19, and Vincent 18. Carl C. Van Vlack, a bottler at the Columbia Brewery, his wife Edna, and their son Douglas, 28, lived around the corner on the same block at 3621 North Stephen Street in Tacoma, Washington. Mildred Hook met Douglas Van Vlack in the spring of 1933 while searching for the Hook family dog, Buster, and soon they began seeing each other. The couple was privately married in Shelton on July 28, 1933, and kept it secret for five months before telling their parents, who weren't especially pleased. In December of 1933, they moved to an apartment at 801 North Street in Tacoma. But living together proved difficult from the beginning. Mildred was gregarious and Douglas was misanthropic. Mildred had a good job with the Washington Gas and Electric Company as a cashier, and Douglas, sullen and argumentative, was unemployed and had difficulty holding jobs. He was drinking heavily and started to physically abuse her. Mildred filed for divorce on November 23, 1934, but the couple got back together when Douglas got a steady job driving a truck for the delicious ice cream company. But he proved unreliable and irresponsible, and several months later, he was discharged. A couple months later, he was employed by the Meadow Sweet Dairies as a milk truck driver, but he was soon fired for insubordination. In September of 1935, during an argument over money at the Van Vlack home, Douglas shoved Mildred down a flight of stairs and locked her out of the house. After cutting her hand on broken glass while trying to regain entrance, Mildred retreated to her parents' home, bruised and bloody. The following day, she filed for divorce again, charging burdensome home life and spousal abuse, and was granted a restraining order prohibiting Douglas from having any contact. Douglas retaliated by stealing all her clothes and jewelry from her own apartment and burying them in the ground. Mildred and her attorney responded by filing a theft complaint. Douglas was arrested on September 15, 1935, but the complaint was later dismissed on plaintiff's motion when items were returned, even though dirt and mold had ruined Mildred's clothing. Meanwhile, both Mildred and Douglas moved home to live with their respective parents. On October 11, 1935, Mildred obtained a divorce and was granted the right to assume her maiden name. Mildred resumed a normal life and went to work every day while Douglas became morose and isolated himself. He became obsessed with getting Mildred back and began stalking her and watching the Hook home for male visitors. On Sunday, October 18th, Mildred went to a physician for treatment after being tied up and raped by Van Vlack. On Thursday, November 14th, Douglas forced Mildred to accompany him on an afternoon automobile ride, then bound her wrists and again physically attacked her. The following day, Mildred and her attorney went to Pierce County Deputy District Attorney Stuart Elliott to file a complaint against Douglas for criminal assault. But when she learned the penalty was 20 years in prison, she decided to drop the charges. 
Instead, she wanted the district attorney to talk to Van Vlack and enforce a restraining order. However, on Monday morning, November 18th, Joseph F. Hook and his attorney, Idaho State Senator Wesley Lloyd, demanded Elliot charge Douglas Van Vlack with violation of the new Washington State kidnapping law. Elliot said it didn't meet the criteria for kidnapping since there was no request from ransom, but agreed to charge Van Vlack with abduction and assault. Sometime during the week, Van Vlack stole a 38 caliber Remington Model 51 semi-automatic pistol and shoulder holster from Morley Barnard, a casual friend, who was living at the YMCA. Earlier, Van Vlack told Bernard he planned to take Mildred to Mexico. If anyone interfered, he would kill her. Bernard didn't realize his gun was missing until a day later. At 5.30 p.m. on Saturday, November 23, 1935, Mildred Hook was on her way home from work with a close friend, Doris Clark, age 20, a student nurse. The two women had just stepped off a downtown streetcar and were walking north on Mason Avenue toward the Hook residence when Douglas Van Vlack drove his car over the sidewalk, blocking their path. He got out of the car, brandishing a pistol and smelling of liquor. The couple quarreled for 15 minutes. Then he told Mildred she had 30 seconds to get in the car, or he would shoot her and then commit suicide. When Clark tried to intervene, Van Vlack pointed the gun at Mildred and shoved her, crying into the car. Before driving away, he told Clark to tell Mildred's father he would kill her if anyone set the police on their trail or tried to interfere in any way. When Joseph Hook learned of his daughter's abduction, he immediately contacted Deputy District Attorney Elliot, who obtained a bench warrant for Van Vlack's arrest. The Tacoma Police Department alerted law enforcement up and down the West Coast to be on the lookout for the couple traveling in Van Vlack's slate gray 1931 Ford Model A coupe bearing Washington plates. With Mildred as a hostage, Van Vlack sped down the Pacific Highway toward the California and United States-Mexican border. At 10.45 p.m., she telephoned her uncle, Frank Mikkel, in Portland, Oregon, telling him she was all right, but was forcibly being taken by Van Vlack, who had threatened to kill her if anyone notified the police. At Salem, Van Vlack headed east across central Oregon to Boise, Idaho. They had been driving for 24 hours straight and arrived in Boise about 5 p.m. on Sunday, November 24th. The couple stayed overnight in a Boise hotel and departed late Monday morning for Salt Lake City. While in Boise, a telegram was sent to Mildred's parents under her name, purporting she was safe and would be returning to Tacoma soon. Van Vlack also sent a telegram to his parents. He said, Sorry I had to do this. Everything all right. Letter follows, Douglas. But a letter never came. At 2 p.m. on Monday, November 25th, 1935, Idaho State Patrolman Fontaine Cooper and Twin Falls Deputy Sheriff Henry Givens spotted Van Vlack's 31 Ford Coupe on the highway, a half mile east of Boole. The officers pulled Van Vlack over to the side of the road, then got out on foot and approached the vehicle. Cooper ordered Van Vlack to step out of the car, and when he didn't respond, he opened the driver's door. Van Vlack pulled his pistol from the left pocket of his top coat 
and shot Cooper through the left eye, killing him instantly. When Givens went for his gun, Van Vlack shot him three times, in the throat, in the left arm, shattering his bones, and through the left hand. With both officers down, Van Vlack calmly drove down the highway toward Twin Falls. Clifford Hammond, a farmer from Boole, was an eyewitness to the shootings. He was passing in his truck and watched the event unfold in his rearview mirror. As soon as Van Vlack left, Hammond went to the scene, found Cooper dead, and Givens critically wounded. Hammond put Givens in his truck and rushed to the Twin Falls County Hospital. Then he telephoned the news to Twin Falls County Sheriff Edward Pratter, who immediately ordered a countrywide dragnet for Van Vlack's automobile. Sheriff's posses set up roadblocks on all roads and highways leading out of the county and guarded all bridges and service stations. Radio stations broadcast descriptions of the couple and asked for the public for assistance in locating Van Vlack's car. It was the biggest manhunt in south-central Idaho's history, with hundreds of posse men armed with weapons from the Idaho National Guard Armory and scores of radio-equipped cars searching for the killer. For the rest of the day, Van Vlack played a game of cat and mouse with sheriff patrols and roadblocks. He hid the car in the sagebrush on the salmon tract until nightfall and removed his license plate, hoping for the opportunity to steal another set off an Idaho car. Van Vlack wanted to head south into Nevada, but roadblocks on the highway forced him to stay on unmarked back roads, which seemingly led nowhere. Eventually, Van Vlack, low on gasoline, ditched his car in a dry irrigation canal near the small farming community of Berger, and the couple set out on foot. The night was clear, and the temperature dropped into the 20s. The couple was lightly clad, having left Tacoma with no winter clothing. Van Vlack wore a top coat and street clothes, and Hook wore a suede coat over a woolen dress and high-heeled pumps. Mildred had gloves, but neither wore a hat. They set out on foot, walking through sagebrush, across fields, along the banks of the irrigation canals to avoid being seen. They periodically took shelter inside haystacks and culverts to get out of the biting wind. At dawn on Tuesday morning, November 26, 1935, two spotter planes left Twin Falls to assist the sheriff posses searching for the couple. At 8.15 a.m., a posse found Van Vlack, cold and exhausted, huddled in a roadside ditch along Highway 93. An Idaho Evening Times reporter disarmed Van Vlack, who claimed his name was Jack Burke, and he held him at gunpoint until the sheriff arrived. The prisoner was taken to Twin Falls and lodged in the jail atop the county courthouse. That afternoon, a search party found Van Vlack's Ford Coupe in a dry irrigation ditch a mile and a half southeast and about three miles from where he was arrested. Although Van Vlack admitted shooting the two police officers, he insisted Mildred was uninjured and was likely making her way back to Tacoma. He told Sheriff Prater they parted company in the middle of the night because he would have a much better chance of escaping alone. But when Prater found blood and long black hair stuck to the butt of Van Vlack's pistol, he worried Hook had been bludgeoned on the head and was lying unconscious somewhere in the freezing cold. On Wednesday, November 27th, Twin Falls District Attorney Edward C. Babcock filed a complaint against Van Vlack in probate court before Judge Gee Kinney. Van Vlack, who appeared without counsel, waived a prelim hearing 
and was bound over for trial. Judge Kinney ordered him to be held without bond in the county jail until the next term of district court, scheduled for January of 1937. Scores of volunteers, led by Twin Falls Police Chief Elrod, renewed the efforts to find the missing victim. Search parties picked up the couple's track at the site of Van Vlack's abandoned car, and slowly and methodically began following the footprints. One set led to the top of an irrigation canal, then seemed to disappear. On Thursday, November 28, 1935, in the off chance that Hook had drowned, water was shut off in the Twin Falls Canal Company irrigation system, allowing 12 hours to search the track canals for Hook's body. Chief Elrod and his search team discovered two sets of footprints leading to the Union Pacific Railway tracks and followed. Finally, at 8.45 on Friday morning, November 29th, they found the frozen body of Mildred Hook lodged in a 16-inch galvanized steel calvert underneath the track bed, approximately one and a quarter miles northwest of where they found Van Vlack. The ends of the calvert had been plugged with sagebrush to hide the body. Mildred Hook appeared to have died from a massive head wound, and when Chief Elrod removed the body, he found a bullet inside the culvert and an empty thirty-eight caliber cartridge casing on the ground nearby. A single set of male footprints led away from the culvert down the railway tracks towards Hollister. Twin Falls County Coroner Harwood Stowe was called to the scene of the murder and ordered that Mildred Hook's body be taken immediately to the White Mortuary in Twin Falls for an autopsy. At the coroner's inquest held on Saturday morning, the jury determined that Hook's death was caused by Douglas Van Vlack, who fractured her skull with a blow to the head and shot her through the left eye. After the inquest, Clyde and Vincent Hook, Mildred's brothers, arranged to ship her body to train to Tacoma for burial. The body of Idaho patrolman Fontaine Cooper lay in state for two days at the White Mortuary in Twin Falls, then was taken to his hometown in Lava Hot Springs, Idaho, for burial in the community cemetery. A funeral service was held on Friday afternoon, November 29th, attended by Idaho Governor Charles Ben Ross and scores of police officers from Idaho and the surrounding states. He had been an Idaho patrolman for 12 years and left behind a wife and one child. And meanwhile... Van Vlack seemed willing to admit his crimes to whoever would listen. On the day of his capture, he gave Prosecutor Babcock a 17-page statement confessing to shooting the two police officers, but refused to sign it. He said, Kidnapping is a capital offense in Washington, and I thought I might as well burn them up. Van Vlack steadfastly denied harming his ex-wife until Sheriff Prater confronted him with photographs of her body. Then he admitted to shooting her. Van Vlack then confessed to Boole Police Chief Arthur Parker, and then he gave a two-hour interview to the Associated Press reporter Walter Beasley, during which he admitted hitting Mildred on the head and shooting her as she emerged from the culvert. He claimed his motive was revenge against the Hook family for breaking up his marriage. He says, If Mildred's father had kept his nose out of our affairs, all this would not have happened. Joseph Hook, however, believed that Mildred knew too much and, in addition to witnessing Cooper's murder, could link him to other crimes in the Tacoma area. Although Henry Givens appeared to be slowly recovering, his throat wound became infected and he developed pneumonia. He died at the Twin Falls County Hospital on Sunday, December 8th, 
leaving behind a wife and six children. Van Vlack was now charged with first-degree murder. The prosecution needed only prove one premeditated death to qualify him for the death penalty. The district attorney decided to hold any other additional merger charges, pending the outcome of the first trial, and then file the others if necessary. Van Vlack pleaded not guilty at his arraignment in Idaho District Court and was held without bail in the Twin Falls County Jail. On Wednesday, January 15th, the charge against Van Vlack for premeditated murder of Fontaine Cooper was dismissed on motion of the prosecution and replaced with the premeditated murder of Mildred Hook. But then Van Vlack maintained his not guilty plea. The defense maintained that Van Vlack had been temporarily insane when he killed Mildred Hook. He had borrowed the gun to protect a large amount of money he was carrying on his person, had abducted Mildred to save his marriage, and had only meant to wound the two Idaho police officers, claimed she was alive when they parted company, and he had no memory of her death. And he also claimed that all his confessions in talking to the press was an elaborate hoax against him. The trial concluded on Friday night, February 7th, and the case went to jury. At 2.20 p.m. the following day, Judge Barclay reconvened the court, and the jury delivered its verdict. Van Vlack was found guilty of first-degree murder, and the jury voted to impose the death penalty. Although sequestered for 17 hours, the jury had deliberated for 7 hours and 30 minutes. The judge ordered Van Vlack to be hanged by the neck until dead, and he set the execution date for Saturday, April 3, 1936, to be held at the Idaho State Pen in Boise, and he signed the commitment order quickly. Van Vlack's execution date was stayed on March 12th when his attorneys filed notice of intention to appeal the conviction to the Idaho State Supreme Court. His case was argued before a tribunal, and Van Vlack appeared before the justices asking that his death sentence be commuted to life imprisonment. On December 10th, the Supreme Court upheld its conviction in district court, and on February 9, 1937, affirmed the sentence of death. Van Vlack's attorneys made two more appeals to the state Supreme Court, but all his petitions were denied. The U.S. Supreme Court refused to review the case. On October 29th, Twin Falls District Court Judge James Porter scheduled Van Vlack's hanging for December 10th, 1937. Meanwhile, at the Idaho State Pen, a gallows was constructed in the elevator shaft of the former shirt factory. The previous person to die on the gallows was John Jerko on July 9th, 1926, who was also convicted of murder in Twin Falls. This time, instead of a state executioner, the trapdoor would be sprung electronically by one of four red buttons pushed by Warden William Guess and three prison officials. The warden scheduled the execution for 12.10 a.m. on Friday morning so that things could be cleared up before the inmates at the institution awoke the next morning. Van Vlack's parents, Carl and Edna, came to visit him. And when his cell door opened at 7.12 p.m., 
Douglas broke away from the guards, jumped onto a nearby table, and scrambled up three tiers of cells into the rafters. He walked on a beam to the opposite side of the cell block, then stayed there looking at the concrete floor some thirty feet below. Warden Guess ordered him to come down, then sent guards to fetch a fire net. Prison chaplain Reverend Ornell and attorney Ashley begged Van Vlack to come down, but he didn't respond. At 7.42 p.m., just as the guards returned with a fire net, Van Vlack shouted, I have a right to choose the way I die. Then he plunged forward and hit the floor in his head and left shoulder. The prison doctor determined Van Vlack was still alive and rolled him onto a mattress and covered him with a blanket. Then there was a lengthy discussion of whether Van Vlack should still be hanged if he was still alive at his execution time. When the doctor determined the prisoner's death was only a matter of time, the warden called off the execution. Van Vlack was pronounced dead at 12.32 a.m. Friday, December 10th, having never regained consciousness. The doctor said his death was most likely caused by a broken neck, possible fractured skull, internal hemorrhaging, and other injuries. On December 11th, the state prison board convened to open an official investigation into the suicide. Idaho Attorney General Taylor said the suicide was either colossal stupidity or collusion on the part of the warden and state prison officials. Governor Clark said, Van Vlack is dead. I presume we should let him remain dead. The fair is closed as far as I'm concerned. But after a week-long political battle with the prison board, Warden Guess was discharged for incompetence. Sheriff Prater was offered the position but declined for financial reasons. Guess was replaced in 1938 by Pearl C. Meredith, a real estate developer from Idaho. Several visitors and museum staff believe they have felt the presence of Van Vlack from sudden drops in temperatures, hearing his voice call out, being touched by a ghostly hand, or seeing his spirit manifest on the roof of cell block number four and the grounds alike. Please join us for part three as we cover more of the old Idaho State Pen on Unsolved Mysteries of the World. Do you like to travel? Want to vacation more frequently? We'll visit our show sponsor, www.experiencethis360.com for travel inspiration, tips, and advice. Learn how you can save on car rentals, hotels, and flights. Just visit www.experiencethis360.com. Now back to the podcast.